about racism, which is kind of a hot topic. As you can imagine, this last couple weeks it has come up, and I, as I explained on Sunday, I was getting ready and excited to do a sermon on what's essential, especially as we get back and people are kind of getting back to the routines, but it seemed like this was a big enough topic and on enough people's minds that it seems like something we should be talking about. So my question is, what do you think of when you see this as my social media posts? See, all black, what do you think of? What immediately comes to your mind when you see that on some of the social media posts? You don't have to answer. So our social media person reached out, and they said this was Blackout Tuesday that came up last week, and I thought, okay. And I haven't said anything remotely political or anything on social media for 18 years, I don't think. So this came up, and they said, can we put up Blackout Tuesday? And and I thought, okay, what, what would be the right thing to do? So I did a little bit of research, and the Blackout Tuesday comes out of the music industry out of California, and the idea was trying to say we recognize that there's injustice happening. Okay, not directly connected, so that's where we're coming from. And I'm not a super political guy, maybe you figured that out. And And the hashtag that our person chose was we love because he first loved us. And I thought, okay, this makes sense. We're trying to show as a church, we recognize that there's injustice is happening and we're trying to say, let's bring the conversation back to Christ. We're willing to listen. That's how I saw it. It went on the social media for four days. On Friday, I got a phone call that said, uh, since when do we put up political content? And I thought, wow, all right. I'm a little bit naive, right? So I do a little bit more research and it is possible, though not directly connected from my research, that this is directly connected to an organization that would be, on some ends, when we're talking about this, the racial injustice that we're suffering, we're talking about uh, kind of the far end of violence, Malcolm X, you think of that, and you think about Islamic and black power. There, there's a group that's connected to that that's also maybe could conceivably be connected to this. Uh, that could be also connected to the under en other end of things, that it's anti-police to put something like this up. It could be connected to, so all this is kind of swirling around. And I'm going, oh man, what do we do? And to quote my friend, he said, he's black, he's a roommate of mine from college. I reached out to him multiple times during this week before I got ready for the sermon. And he said, Jared, it's nuanced. It's not so easy not to to use something so cliche as black and white, but it's just not. You can't just say that this is right, this is wrong, this is how it works. And even in this, I thought, do we take it down? If we take down the social media posts that I, I was trying to bring the conversation back to Christ and Christ loves us, that says something. If you leave it up, it says something. And ultimately, I thought, what's the worst thing that could happen is it leads to some conversations, which it did. And I think that's what, what you're going to find out. I'm going to do my best to talk about racism, as I just talked about the, where race came from and that we're one human race, and I'm going to do a little bit of review. I'm going to do my best. I'm sure I'm going to misspeak on some level um, because I'm just, I, I'm, it sounds terrible to say that I haven't cared, but I'll get to why it hasn't been a major thing on my mind for the last 40-some years and why just recently there's more and more research and thinking and conversations that I've had. Does that sound fair? So just a recap of last week. I'm going to pray that this works. It doesn't. So, Patrick, can you go to the next slide? Um, all people, if you can just go to the next one. We came to this ascent. We went back to Genesis. We said all people are created by God. This is a huge thing that God created us. And what we're getting at is we're not like the end of some kind of line of, and I think this is a big idea, some evolutionary line, and I think that makes a big difference. If we're like Heinz number 57 or we're 409 the cleaner, 
right? That doesn't say much, right? That means there's 408 that weren't that good, but then we finally nailed it. And there's 56 that weren't that good. It's way easier to make booze because how many did Jack Daniels need? He only needed seven. He knew what he was doing. He got into seven. Maybe it cost more. So he said, number seven is the one we're going to go with. If you view things, and some people view that like that, um, that we are created with God from Adam and Eve, and that's an essential thing. So if you go to the next one, we're made in God's image, and I think the way that we explain it, and I think it's helpful, is to think that you're an imager of God. And what we mean by that, it's like an angled mirror. And when God, when God is in heaven, and when we function on this earth, when we love, when we show justice, when we show empathy, when we show care, when people see us function as human beings, they know that this is how God would function. And people haven't seen this since Jesus has walked the earth, and we're going to get to that in a second. So another highlight from Genesis, we're all unique. I know we tell all the kids that they're special, but there is really a uniqueness to it. No one talks like you. Your ears are, your eyes are unique. It's like, and I don't want to say the fifth grade or middle school speech of you're a snowflake, but there's something to that, that everybody is unique, and you don't have to do be strange to stand out, but God has made you unique. He's made us men, and he's made us women. He didn't say, I want to make everyone the exact same. That's a big deal. If you can go to the next one, Petra. Because of two things, just go to the next two, we are incalculably valuable to God, and we're made to have a relationship with God, which, is, which is means because God created us, it does not matter. And when people see us reflect God's love, the way that we look at people, it doesn't matter if they have money or they don't have money. Uh, we're incalculably valuable, which means that every single person has value, and it doesn't matter. So the world struggles with this a little bit, which is trying to say that it does not matter, um, born or unborn, or if you're rich or poor, if you're really smart or you're not very smart, if you're black or white, none of this matters. If you're old and you feel like, you know what, I cannot give to society what I used to give, from a Christian perspective, and this is a uniquely Christian perspective and worldview, God says you have value. And so when we look at people, people should see the way that we function and that fact that we're against any injustice. We're against abortion. We're against sex trafficking. We're against uh, euthanasia. We're against uh, racism on any level. All of this, when they look at it, they should say Christians are a reflection of God. Now, just imagine 2,000 years ago, you got to see Jesus function, and we could see it multiple times, right? He, he mixed it up. He was with the prostitutes. He was with the sinners. He was with the social elite. This is how God would have functioned. Jesus ascended to heaven, though. So 40 days after he rose from the dead, he's gone. And so there's a reason why the Apostle Paul would try and explain to the people, we're going to go look in Colossians, that basically you are it. A lot of pressure, right? God is saying, like, for reflectors of who I am, you're it. So if you can go to the next slide. This is Colossians chapter 3. So he's talking to the people, and he says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. These people are not living as reflections of God. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. If that's how you function, this is how people would see God. If you can go to the next one. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge. And the next one. And the image of its creator, that's going right back. Remember, we said we lost the image of God, and, and we've, we're not a clear reflection, but he's saying renew yourself with this image. This is this, your look. 
Here there is, and here's the result. There's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. It doesn't matter because Christ is all and is in all. So that's kind of our big takeaway that we say, okay, you're the only ones left. You're the only ones who get to carry this knowledge that says every single human being is valuable. As Christians, you are the bearers of this knowledge to tell the world that God has come to this world. God has given up his son to injustice so that we could be justified. God says he loves you. God says he accepts you. God says he wants you to live in heaven forever. You're the ones who carry that. And for the most part, I think we've done a reasonably good job if you talk about the billions of Christians that are on this planet. But then you think back, have we always done an awesome job? I think back a little bit, and you think of, like, what's the most famous hymn of all time? Amazing Grace. They estimate it's sung 10 million times a year. So John Newton writes this. If you don't know the story of John Newton, John Newton was, uh, he was conscripted into the army. So he was not seen as a super good kid. So they put him into the Royal Navy, I should say. So he was British. They put him in the Royal Navy. He functions in there, and then he gets a job. And his first job is on a ship, which is pretty exciting, right? He works as a ship, but the ship is slave trade. And so the slave trade ship, after the middle of a storm, he becomes a believer. He begs for, begs for God's mercy. And you think, wow, this turnaround of this man who would have been racist and seen people as lesser than himself, who would have seen these columns of people as um, like here's, here's, the, here's the evolution of the white person or here's the evolution of the black person and we're just more, so more advanced rather than one race coming from Adam and Eve, he still does the slave trade for four or five years. It's only after a bit he gets off the ship, studies theology, and becomes a pastor. I think about like, and probably every one of you, a generation before you can think of a relative that uses terms that you wouldn't use, that talks about things in a way that you wouldn't talk about, and we get to a point, if you can go to the next slide, Papes, now you have to hit a number of them. Movement on an issue. I'm going to just try and see if this will disappoint me. It does. Can we go to the next one? So this is how I looked at it. When I was a kid, I would see, and I'd go to my, see a relative, and that I can think distinctly of multiple relatives, and they would use terms, and I would say, even as a kid, I thought, this person is a racist. Like, this is not right. And at that moment, you make a choice that says, I am not going to talk that way. And I'm guessing everybody in this room says, I am not going to talk that way, and I'm not going to look at people like that. I would think most of the people you know would say, that's how I function. So if you go from, we'd say we're racist, but now we're not racist. And this was a big move. It went from A to B. And I think about my own parents in Appleton, Wisconsin. Has anyone been to Appleton, Wisconsin? Appleton, Wisconsin is not a super ethnically diverse but there was some diversity, and we had um, refugees from, the Hmong refugees came, they were being persecuted, so they left and they, from Laos, and they came to the Midwest, some went into the Minneapolis area, that's why you'll see a number of Hmong families that live there, and in the Appleton area, and my parents more or less adopted one of the families to make sure they could get to school, make sure they could come to church, they were Christian, and they could um, help out with job applications, help them get into college. I mean, th this was a long time that my mom was one of the references for them that helped them out. I thought this was really great. The other experience that we had was we went down to uh, my grandma's and grandpa, grandma's grandma and grandpa lived south of Chicago, so we'd take a three and a half hour trip. And uh, I'm cheap, just like my dad is cheap, so he would try and find a deal anywhere. And you may not remember this, 
I'm sure Julie doesn't remember this, but this is the greatest thing that ever happened for small children. You would get the JCPenney catalog or the Sears catalog. It was like my favorite day of the whole year. And you'd like go right to the toy section, which is always a little bit towards the back, right? And so you'd start looking through this. This was fascinating. There was a magical place in Milwaukee. There's a magical place that they would send all the returns and they would sell all the overstock. And so we would go into there and... To be honest, that was probably about four or five when we first started going. And we'd go to the JCPenney outlet, and I was utterly terrified. And I was scared. Now, this is an aside. I, I was scared, and I would look to my dad. And some of you talk about battles with your dad, like my dad's tougher than your dad. You ever have those talks? I never got into those fights, and hopefully my dad doesn't listen to this, but my dad is not the most intimidating person of all time. He's a science teacher that liked to ride his bike and take pictures of flowers. So this is my dad. As we walk into the JCPenney outlet, we are the only white people for about a mile and a half, right? You, you walk in, it's only us. And I'd look at my dad, and he, he didn't treat me like, stay close to me, watch out. He would let me go to the toy section, and we'd catch up. That said something to me. My dad had confidence not because of he was so intimidating and no one could mess with him. He had confidence because this was an okay situation. So I'm five, six years old, seven, eight, nine, ten. We keep going to the outlet. You don't think much of it. You just say this is how life works. This is how it functions. And so my parents, and I think this is a special thing because they were a little bit closer connected to people who would have used terms that were not appropriate as for racist terms. My parents made a choice that said we are not going to be racist. We're not going to raise our kids that way. We're not going to talk that way. And I've never heard a racist thing come out of my parents' mouth ever. And I've never even seen them show any kind of bias towards people of color or different ethnicities. Or we go down Milwaukee to the Brewer Games. There's never this sense of, like, watch out. Or there's never this sense of fear. There's just saying, these are people. We're people. That's how it works. Here's the problem. And I think I'm discovering this just recently. Up until this point in Jared's, in my life, moving from... I'm deciding I'm not going to be a racist. I, that's not okay. I, I'm going to say, you know what? I'm not going to be a racist. I thought that was good. And so for 40 years of my life, I'm looking back and I'm thinking, I never shared in the jokes. I never said things. I never it, it consciously tried to do the very best I can. But I don't know if that's fully true when we talk about racism. And when they read about more and more of it, they're talking about um, this guy named Ibram Kendi. I was going to show his video. But Ibram Kendi said this. He's a professor and a doctor. He said, being a racist is not a fixed term. It's not an identity. It's not a tattoo. It is describing what a person is doing in the moment, and people change from moment to moment. He gave the example. He's African-American. He's black. And he said, I used to be racist. I used to look at, uh, you used to be racist against black people, ironically. And, and he, what he's basically saying is that even racists say they're not racist. And we, there's a difference between just moving from racist to not racist. There's times when we would say, I'm not a racist. I think all of us would use those terms. We'd say, I'm not racist. I don't use uh, the N-word. I don't, um, I've got a black friend. I, uh, this is, these are the things that we, we say as Caucasian people. But there's times that we slip over, and he gave some examples, and I've heard some different examples. Employment is a key example when we're talking about the nation. When you look at racism in the United States, there's a couple things, and I'll give one definition. Most of you probably know this. This is actually news to me, so I'm a bit, bit embarrassed. But news to me is people use the word systemic racism. This is probably common to everybody. 
but I'll explain it, and hopefully I'm not like mansplaining it, but I did not hear of this term until about two weeks ago, and someone was trying to explain it to us. I'm calling a friend to understand the Drew Brees situation, and he's explaining it to me. This is how it works. The gist of it is this, that over the course of three or four hundred years, situations have lined up to make it more difficult to be black than it is white. That's the gist of it. And you can look at stats, and you could argue that or not argue that, but you can look at stats, and things seem to align that there's something that's broken. When they look at the incarceration rate, in Milwaukee, if you're a black man, you have a one in three chance of being incarcerated at some point. One in 17 if you're white. Like something's not right there, and that's what you're trying to figure out. You can look at home ownership, and I think it's three times more likely if you're white to own a house than you are if you're black. When you look at net um, cumulative wealth, the average white person has a cumulative wealth of $171,000, 10 times greater than the average black person. So all these things kind of stack up when they look at college, when they look at admissions, when they look at unemployment, which is doubled even among educated uh, black people. So it's not just like, well, they're not educated. Even among people with degrees, it's still the unemployment is double that of white people. So you're saying as a whole, something's not right. There's something going on here, and that's the gist of systemic racism. We're not going to touch on that, and there's two reasons why I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. One, there's no real bad guy. If we had answers and we could say this is, a, if we just did this and we flipped this lever and we had an answer, I think we would go down that route. But there's no distinct thing. There's nothing specifically wrong with the school system. There's nothing specifically with home loans. I mean, if we could just pinpoint one problem and fix everything, there's no bad guy in that sense. They're saying that this is, is around the whole thing. That two is really it comes down to our own heart. And when I look at this, we could talk a whole lot about how the nation has a problem. But I think more about what are the times when myself, when I say I'm not a racist, I start sliding over to racist things. So this would be an example. If you were in charge of HR, the number of people of our church are involved in HR, and you got names for qualified applicants, and you had names, and the names on the applicants said something like, uh, I wrote some down, Ben, Aaron, Terrence, or Emmanuel. Now the question is, which of those two, all equally qualified, do you call back? You can only call two for an interview. Which two do you call? Now just by their name, you could figure out that probably the last two are black, Terrence and Emmanuel, right? Now use these names because these are four black guys that I know. But, th but this was kind of the idea. In your heart, did you just say for a second, well, I'd probably call this person versus that person? That's what we call that this is um, shadow racism. This is racism that sneaks into it. And again, it doesn't label us that you're racist, but at that moment, if you look at it and you make a judgment about someone, their worth and their ability to do your job just based on a name, that's racist at that moment. Or you think about something that's happening in dating and marriage. This is kind of a key thing. What, makes, uh, what, what do you think of when you're watching a couple and there's a black man and a white woman on a date or they're married? What, what kind of feelings do you have? Do you say this is good? This is bad? Viscerally, do you feel like it's okay or it's not okay? Or I'm, what kind of feelings do you have? I know someone that talked to me, they'll go, I know it's not wrong, but it's just, pastor, it just doesn't, it's not right. I, I, it just doesn't seem right to me. The Bible doesn't talk that way. The Bible doesn't make distinctions when it gets to interracial marriages. It, it, it doesn't talk anyway. In fact, it talks against it. And I'm going to give you one example. 
If you think about some of the most famous people in the Bible, who would come to mind? Moses, perhaps. So Moses is Jewish, and so Abraham is the first of the Jewish, and about 500 years later, Moses comes along, and Moses is going to get married, and he gets married to a Cushite woman. Now, the Cushite women were known for their dark skin and later associated with Ethiopia, so we're assuming that they have very dark skin. His brother and sister are totally not on board, so Aaron and Miriam are not fans, and they're about to lead a rebellion, it says in the Bible, because of his Cushite wife. So if you can go to the next slide, PJ. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Now Moses wrote the book of Numbers, so obviously he's the most humble man because he wrote that sentence. <laughs> At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you, so the three of them went out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous and became white as snow. The story continues and they, uh, they beg, can you please heal him? So Moses cries out to the Lord for immediate healing of Miriam. And he basically says, if, you, if a man, this is the, the, what, Jesus, uh, what God's saying, that if you're defiled, you have to set out a week. So basically Miriam has to leave the camp for a week. What, what is the gist of that? They didn't like this Cushite wife, and God says that's not okay. So we see these kind of uh, implicit racism that kind of comes out in the things that we do, in our feelings, in the way that we talk, maybe sometimes interracially things. We see it in our family. Do you see it also among assumptions? And I think this is probably a little bit more common. There was a story about a few years ago, a year and a half ago, there was a woman, I think it was, I'm not going to guess the state because that's going to make me look like I'm, I'm guessing where people who would do this live. But I think it was Alabama. So there's a woman in Alabama, the four boys who are in part of the football team, they're selling the discount card, you know, the ones that you, you never use that you buy to help your neighbor. So we bought some of those too. So they're going, they're selling these. They even have their jerseys on, two of them have their jerseys on. And at one point, the woman thinks there's trouble and puts all four of them at gunpoint on the ground and calls the police. The police come and have the boys stand up, and what's the assumption that they're going to there to cause trouble when they're saying, we're just selling these cards? And she saw them as a threat. And I thought, oh, that's crazy. A friend of mine who I'm talking to, a friend who's black, he's telling me a story when he lives in an affluent neighborhood in Florida, and he's running in his own neighborhood, and someone said he looks suspicious, and the police stop him, question him, and he said it was awful, and they treated me terribly. And there wasn't even as much as an apology to say, sorry, sir, you know, go on your run, didn't mean to do that. He said nothing, and he said it shook him up. Another person we know, when you're reading about it, when they get on an elevator, someone is like shaking in fear. Another person, when he worked at a, I was listening to this story, he's a realtor, this is his job, he's going to change locks on a house, and a woman sees him, a white woman, he's black, he's changing locks on the house, she sees him, he shows his credentials that, hey, I'm a realtor, she calls the police, and the police show up, 
because he was threatening his life. You see the person who's a bird watcher, you probably saw that in Central Park, about as intimidating as my father, right, as bird watcher, and what happens, the woman says, this African-American man is threatening my life. There's assumptions that go with all of these things, and I think some of these assumptions come from our own heart when we see situations. What does your family see? And I think that's the other thing. Uh, you wonder, the next generation watches what we do and what we say. So is our goal, is our goal, and I think that's our question, to just not be racist? If you can go to the next slide, Pedro. Uh, one more, please. So we go racist in, for a long time in my life, and, and by a long time, I mean up until about last week, if you can go to the next one, I thought I am doing okay because I'm not racist. Well, let's just talk about that for a little bit. Um, smoking, how do you feel on smoking? I don't know if anyone smokes here. So uh, most people, that is kind of shifted, right? So this is a th an issue where people would smoke and they say, do you smoke? And you say, I don't, no, I don't smoke. What does that mean? That's saying like, I'm not, I'm not a smoker, right? So someone says, I'm a smoker. And they say, do you want to smoke? And you just say, I'm not a smoker. That doesn't really mean much though, does it? Does it mean like, I don't want you to smoke? Does it mean I don't want you to smoke in my house? Does it mean like you should never smoke? What happens if someone comes to you and they say, hey, do you want to go get a beer? And you say, because I like to drink beer. I'm a beerist. And the other person says, no, I don't drink beer. Does that mean I don't want you to drink beer? It doesn't mean anything. And up until about a week ago, I didn't fully grasp what people were getting at when they, they were saying this about who we are. And I'll, I'll give you maybe a more visceral example. If someone said, um, hey, do you want to go sex traffic someone? And they say, well, I'm not a sex trafficist, trafficker. And you just left it at that. What does that say? That says implicitly, you do what you want. I'll do what I want. We just do different things. If you can do one more slide, Pedro. There's a big shift, I think, from recognizing racism is not okay the next level is saying, I'm not a racist, right? I'm not going to do these things. I'm making a conscious choice. And I would say that's 99% of the people that you know who have said, I'm not going to use these words. I'm not going to overtly do these, uh, do or say things that would show any kind of bias. There's a big difference between that and saying, I'm against racism. And so let me give you a, a couple examples of what that would look like. It means when your friend uses a joke, it means you hold that person accountable and says, that's not okay. Right? That's a big difference. So if we're just talking about smoking, the so person says, do you want to smoke? I say, no, I'm not a smoker. They go and smoke. That's not a big deal. But if I'm anti-smoking, for a, a simple example like that, they say, do you want to smoke? I say, no, I'm anti-smoking. And they light up. I'd probably take their cigarette, especially if they're my kids. I would say, I'm anti-kid smoking. This is not happening. Right? Or if someone wants to watch a bad movie, I don't just say, no, I don't watch inappropriate movies. I'm anti-watching inappropriate movies with my kids. We're not going to do that. I'm against this. We're going to get rid of this. When it comes to racism, the same thing is true. So someone makes a joke. You could be not a racist, which means you just don't think the joke's funny. Anti-racist says this is not okay. And being able to have these conversations that says this is not good. This sounds a little cliche, but I think there's something to educating other people and, and educating as many as the people at our own church have done, and my friends have done, as I've made phone calls to say, I don't understand it. The Drew Brees situation, I didn't understand until I sat down and said, where, 
where is it, his teammates coming from? I don't get it. Uh, right when we're talking about the flag and honoring the flag, and he says he doesn't want to do anything to dishonor the flag. I didn't quite get it. He helped explain this to me, and I go, okay, I kind of get it. I don't fully agree necessarily with the medium that they're using to try and bring awareness to social injustice, but I kind of get where they're coming from, and how does that come? It comes from a conversation. That also, being an anti-racist means actually recognizing, and I think this is probably the most humbling thing. When I think about my who I am as a dad, I thought I was going to be the greatest example to my kids about being, because I'm not racist, right? They're not going to hear their dad say some inappropriate comment. They're not going to hear me sh show bias. If we were driving by the JCPenney outlet, if it still existed, we'd still stop, and they're not going to see fear in their dad's eyes. But I don't think that's quite enough. And I think to leave a legacy for my kids, they have to look and think that my dad was against all injustices. He's against abortion. He's against euthanasia. He's against sex trafficking. He's against pornography. He's against um, looking down on people because they don't have money. My dad's against people who are racist in any racist action, which means I have to recognize something about myself, that there's certain privileges that have been given to me. There's been certain privileges that have happened in my life that have gotten to me to the place that I'm at. Now, there's some disadvantages too, right? But I think a whole picture of what we're looking at. People use the illustration. I don't know if it's the greatest illustration, but it says you've got a bunch of kids and one hurts themselves. You want to listen to find out what's happening. And I think as a nation, we'd say we're a nation. There's something that's not going well. And it only makes sense that we have to step back and say, we do have privilege. We don't have to feel guilt about that, but we have to recognize maybe there's something that we can use. We can use the privileges. We can use the blessings that God has given us to try and do something to step forward. I wish I had answers. My same friend who said it's nuanced said, just pretend you don't have, a, please pretend, uh, please don't pretend you have all the answers. I don't. I don't. And for me, you're seeing a very vulnerable pastor who doesn't have like, we're going to do this and this and this and fixed. And we're going to talk about next week, the next steps forward. And I think it's very nuanced and it's very complex because we're dealing with human beings. We're dealing with the human condition. Uh, but that still doesn't mean that we can't be reflectors of who God is. So we just jump back to where we started. I don't lie to each other, uh, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Remember, we're reflectors of God's love. Since Jesus has gone to heaven, you're all we've got. That's it. And if the world is going to see God on this planet, they're going to see love, if they're going to see justice, if they're going to see acceptance, they're only going to see it in you, the Christian population. And through Christ, as forgiven children, we get to do that and step forward. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for the opportunities you've given us, the privileges you've given us, and help us to have conversations, help us to understand more of where people are coming from, help us to understand that we ultimately can't understand what it's like to live as someone we're not. I can't understand what it's like to, to be a woman in this world. I can't understand what it's like to be a black man or an Asian man or a Latino man in this world. You've made me who I am, and you've made everyone in this congregation who they are. That does not mean we can't reach out. It doesn't mean we can't listen. It doesn't mean we can't empathize for something that doesn't seem right. And help us to be just as vigorous uh, of all things, life and death, and, and see that all people have value. Help us be carriers of this great knowledge that you love all people. You've given your life for all people. You want a relationship with all people. Help us be reflectors of that love as we function in this world. 
We ask this in your name. Amen.